0: heavenly father we uh, we rejoice in the wonderful news of Jesus our risen king our Savior and our Lord uh, we thank you that we can gather as your people that we can um, hear from your word we pray that you would speak to us through the passage today uh, change us by it by its truths for your glory we pray in Jesus name amen thanks Chris
1: so our reading starts at the end of Matthew verse uh, chapter 27 starting at verse 57. And then through into chapter 28, uh, ending at verse 15, starting on page 1520, if you've lost the bookmark. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate... He asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I will rise again. So, give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go. Make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at the dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. there you will see him now I have told you so the women hurried away from the tomb afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples suddenly Jesus met them greetings he said they came to him clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day.
0: Thanks, Chris, and good morning, friends. Uh, It's great to see you. My name's Duncan, if we haven't met before. I'm the pastor here at Trinity South Coast, and it's uh, just a uh, a real buzz to have so many people visiting us this morning as well as so many uh, regulars from our area. Uh, I hope you feel really welcome and have a great time this morning, not only uh, gathering together but hearing from God in His word. Uh, it is great to have you here. Uh, I wanted to introduce you to uh, a couple of people, a couple of people from uh, 70 years ago, 70 years ago, in 1946, uh, uh, a lady named Gladys Hodell, a young lady, uh, went on a holiday with a friend to Hayman Island uh, in the Whit Sundays so. Uh, 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 it was before Heyman Island became as famous as it is now. Uh, but they went there on a holiday, this, uh, Gladys and her, her friend. Gladys had been a nurse during the Second World War uh, and was taking a well-earned break afterwards. And at the same time, uh, this dapper young chap, if you can see him, uh, was also on holiday at the island. Uh, his name was Albert. He was an ex-airman who had navigated supply planes across the Atlantic, and uh, during the holiday that they both happened to be on Hayman Island, Albert and an Air Force mate um, sort of uh, uh, caught the eye of Gladys and her friend and managed to kind of sit at a table nearby them. Uh, Gladys uh, recalls, uh, recalled that she wore a large brooch the shape of a basket with some flowers in it. Uh, and in a classic move, um, Bert uh, spent his time rolling up little bits of paper and trying to flick it into the basket in Gladys's brooch to get her attention. Uh, at the end of the holiday, Gladys found herself in a bit of a bind. Uh, her family background was a very difficult one, and at the end of her holiday, there was nowhere for her to go. Cue young Bert. Bert asked Gladys to come back with him uh, to his family home in, a, in a, a country town called Clermont in Queensland, if you've heard of it, Uh, He sent a telegram to his mother uh, that read, Arriving Monday, stop. Bringing surprise, stop. (laughs) Uh, They caught the train to Clermonts, but when they arrived, they thought it was a bit weird because there was no one waiting at the train station for them. Uh, There was no one there. So they walked all the way to the family house. Uh, It was this large Queenslander on tall stilts with stairs going up. Um, uh, Bert walked up the stairs. Gladys stayed down uh, on the the ground, Bert walked up and knocked on the door and uh, uh, Bert's mum opened the door, his mother came out and looked at Bert and said, oh hello Bert, what are you doing here? Uh, Gladys later wrote that, I wanted the ground to swallow me up. Bert's mother had never got the telegram. So there's this moment of tension, okay, Bert's at the door, his mum's come out there's Gladys down on the ground at the bottom of the steps. And then Gladys wrote, Then she threw her arms around me. It was the best welcome I could have. Then I was glad to be there. Uh, it's a great story. I, I like telling it and, and, and full of moments where things could have gone differently. You know, if Bert had missed. Uh, flicking the paper and hit someone else or something or if Bert's mum had come out and had a totally different reaction who knows how it could have panned out. For me personally it's one of those turning point events, uh, watershed moments. Uh, If you haven't guessed already Bert and Gladys are my grandparents. Uh, You know what a watershed is? Uh, it's a ridge that divides a continent. There's a bit of a, a map coming up now of the kind of uh, 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 the divisions of these watershed uh, ridges ac- across Australia. Uh, it divides the continent so that rain that falls on one side of it flows all the way in one direction, and rain that falls on the other side of this ridge uh, flows all the way in the, to the opposite side, and it can end up. Thousands and thousands of kilometres apart, just depending on which side of this ridge this water falls. Uh, it's a defining point. A drop of water on one side of the ridge can land you up in, can can wind its way up to Queensland, and the other side can end up actually winding its way down near to us, uh, on the other side of this watershed. Uh, just a few centimetres to the left, or a few centimetres to the right, <laughs> uh, and who knows where it would have ended. Well, if Bert hadn't gone to the Haman Islands and flicked that paper into Gladys' brooch or uh, all those things, if Bert's mum, as I said, had a different reaction, uh, that would have, been a, uh, it was, it would have been a turning point, a watershed moment where my life wouldn't, would have gone very differently because I wouldn't have had one. <laughs> uh, they are, like I said, my, my of course, my grandparents. But life is full of these kind of turning points, right? These are events in the past uh, that we don't really have much control over but that define us in the present. Right, They define us in the present. They shape us, not just personally, of course, uh, globally, these global events that you have nothing to do with, but that shape your life for better or for worse. They shape you in, in deep ways that will probably never actually plumb the depths of. The discovery of penicillin, the invention of the internet, uh, 9-11, uh, the moment when South Australians Brie and Jessica won My Kitchen Rules. I... I don't watch the show, but I'm told it's popular. So maybe that's, for some of us, a defining moment in life. Um, But uh, Easter Sunday, friends, Easter Sunday. The, The reason why Easter is such a big deal, such a defining moment, is because the claim of Easter Sunday is that it is the great watershed moment in all of human history that shapes and changes everything that comes after it. Uh, it happened before any of us were around, uh, but the impact of that first Easter Sunday has shaped human history more than any other event. It unleashed a, move, a movement that spread across the gro- globe and has captivated human hearts ever since, so that there's more people today across the world that ground their lives in this event than in any other belief system. Friends, we're inviting you this Easter, across all the Trinity network of churches, but here at Trinity South Coast, we're inviting you to imagine a world without Easter, a world in which Easter never happened, in which the events that we sort of celebrate this weekend never happened. Particularly today, we're asking you to imagine a world where death wins. Uh, And perhaps the reason why Easter, the events of Easter, have been such a defining moment for world history is because... It stands out so starkly to the alternative. Uh, You fall on it, right? You end up flowing one way that leads you in one direction. You fall on the other side, though, fall off it, off the other side of this ridge, you flow the total opposite direction and end up in a completely opposite place. The two alternatives are so different. And the reason why this, this ridge, this watershed, has been so captivating is because, friends... We're also familiar with one side of the watershed. Um, we're also familiar with where you flow on one side of this ridge. See, we don't have to work hard at all, actually, to imagine a world where death wins. Do you? I mean, you, you don't have to really work hard at all to imagine that kind of a world. Uh, it is where everything ends up, right? <laughs> Uh, Death swallows everything in the end. It's the stream we're all in. Some of us are more um, painfully aware of that than others. We tend to hide away death in our culture so that uh, we can sort of get on without thinking too much about it. But it'll touch us all in the end. Uh, uh, In a world where death wins, uh, that's the world, actually, that we're all in. We all know it. And despite any attempts that we have to kind of cover it up or ignore it. um, So, on one level, asking you to imagine a world where death wins is just asking you to imagine the world that you have lived in, (laughs) that you know. But friends, the claim of Easter Sunday is that through what happened on that day, a new stream (laughs) has been opened up. A stream that incredibly, against all the flow of this world, a new stream that incredibly, wonderfully leads to an utterly different place. A moment that is the watershed moment for all of human history. And friends, can be the watershed moment of your history, of your life. We're going to read about it. Uh, In Matthew 27, we're going to work through the passage, uh, look through it, read through it together, uh, before we sort of um, draw some of those threads together. If you do have Bibles open, that may help you. There's also an outline in the handout that might be a help as well. Chris read it for us earlier, friends. The story picks up uh, the events of Good Friday. Jesus, this one who claimed to be Israel's Messiah, the Son of God, the King, Uh, The king who would bring about God's plans for the entire world. This Jesus had died a brutal and humiliating death. If you were here on Friday, we remembered that. And the story picks up in verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. Uh, He had himself been a disciple of Jesus. So going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body and Pilate orders that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone across the entrance to the tomb uh, and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Friends, uh, Easter Friday is about this collision, right, of Jesus and death. Collision of Jesus and the stream that... We're all in. It is a collision. Well, we'll get there where it ends up. Uh, But the first kind of question that Matthew, in what we read, sort of opens up to us uh, is, who is this Jesus and is he just a body to mourn? Did you notice as we read through there, uh, if you've got your Bibles open, verse 59, Jesus is just referred to as the body. He's just the body, he's just a corpse. Uh, the Romans knew how to kill, right? Uh, and to make sure a guy was really dead. And this guy was really dead. <laughs> he was a lifeless corpse. And Joseph of Arimathea, the guy who got him down from the cross, he knew that. Uh, and out of love and respect for this man who he had uh, followed, who had captured his heart, he took him down uh, from the cross and put him in his own new tomb. And that's what you do for the dead body of someone you love and you're mourning for. And we notice right at the end, there's the two women there uh, mourning for this man who had shown them such kindness, who had given them such dignity during their life. At this point, friends, Jesus is just a body to mourn. It's just another body to mourn. And that's what you see with Joseph and the women but you see, as we read on, uh, that's not actually all that's going on here. See, well, while for the disciples, they're just in shock, they're mourning, uh, the Jewish leaders see Jesus differently. Even after they've organised and arranged his execution, they see Jesus differently. He's not just a body. They certainly wouldn't mourn him. Uh, they view him as an ongoing threat that needs extinguishing, right? These guys, for, Jesus, for them, Jesus is a threat. Uh, and you pick that up at verse 62, the next day, the one after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees go to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. And so they asked Pilate, the governor, to give the order for the tomb to be made secure. And we sort of heard about that earlier. Pilate says, take a guard, a troop of soldiers, and go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. Uh, so they, they go and do that. You see, for the, for the chief priests and the Pharisees, Jesus was a threat. You notice as we read through, and maybe you picked it up as Chris read it, uh, what are they called Jesus? Jesus is that deceiver, that deceiver. Uh, and, and interestingly, did you also notice, it's these guys, these guys who see him as a threat, who call him a deceiver, it's them, uh, not Jesus' disciples at this point, who remember what Jesus had said, that he would rise again on the third day. It's difficult to know what is going on for these guys, these these religious leaders. They see Jesus as a threat. Uh, What are they paranoid about? They might have been paranoid about what they say here, that the disciples might come and steal the body. Uh, But uh, on one level... uh, uh, you know, because that's the disciples themselves. So, well, on one level, though, that's a kind of difficult uh, conclusion to reach about what's going on for these guys because you think about what's happened to these disciples, right? The disciples that have followed Jesus, uh, they haven't been all that impressive up to this point. They've left Jesus abandoned. Uh, one of their key members, their treasurer, Judas, has betrayed them and Jesus. They, they're in fear and disarray. And so the kind of thought that this group could steal themselves, organize themselves to go and sneak past the soldiers, roll back this massive stone without them noticing, without anyone seeing, get through the seal and the stone, and sort of quietly sneak off with Jesus' body. Uh, it's, well, you know, maybe, but highly implausible. But friends, perhaps the religious leaders here, perhaps they do actually have a deeper fear. About what's going on? Perhaps this man who had—they knew that Jesus had done incredible things. They knew that he had healed the sick. They knew he'd had done incredible miracles. They knew that he himself had even raised other people from the dead. And so perhaps the underlying fear going on for these guys and why they think Jesus is such a threat, perhaps they think, well, what if he really will rise? What if he really will? What would that mean for how they treat him? We'll, we'll get, come back to that in a, in a minute. But whatever the reason for their anxiety, it's, it's, it's interesting that they, they call Jesus a deceiver. We mentioned that before. Because uh, at the end of the passage we looked at, it's them who end up being the deceivers, right? They're the ones who... Uh, engage in deception. Uh, if you keep reading the, down to the chapter uh, 28, verse 11, the women were on their way. Some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Everything that had happened. Uh, when the chief priests had met the elders and devised a plan, they, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money. They, they bribed these guys. Uh, they bribed these guys into, into themselves spreading a lie about what happened to Jesus' body. And we're told that the story, at the time that this Gospel was written, that story was still going around, that Jesus' body was stolen. They, they hear the story of what really happened from the guards and they bribe them to spread another rumour. Oh, and friends, it was their only option, wasn't it? Really? It's the only option for these guys? The other option was too terrifying. The thought that this guy... Really did rise from the dead. I mean, if they were to actually accept that, everything would have to change. All the status quo, all their kind of, all their power that they had, all their, everything would have to change if they accepted it. It would mean he really was who he had said he was all the way along. He really was God's promised King who would come to sit to his people to set up God's eternal kingdom and defeat death. Uh, It would mean that they would have to acknowledge Jesus as their Lord and their King and they weren't willing to bend their knee to him. So Jesus, in this story, he's a dead body to mourn. He's a threat to be exterminated, extinguished. But of course, there's another group in this story who were willing to bend their knee, who saw this event and recognised it for what it was. The two women 28 verse 1. After the Sabbath, on the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary, Magdalene, and the other Mary went to the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow, I mean, can you imagine seeing this terrifying angel of light? Well, we're told the guards were so afraid of him, they shook. They had their own kind of quake. This angel was so powerful. The earth quaked and now the, the, the soldiers themselves had their own little quake and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, don't be afraid, I know. And it goes on. Uh, They end up seeing Jesus. The women get to the tomb. They see this terrifying sight. (sighs) Can you imagine what it would be like for these women? They come up. uh, They see this one, this angel of light with what appear to be dead bodies scattered around him. Okay? I imagine I'd be pretty afraid too, right? Uh, It's no coincidence that... Usually when angels meet people in the Bible, the first thing they say is, do not be afraid. Uh, because the thing that you do when you see one is, be afraid. <laughs> be very afraid. Uh, but despite the instru- angels' instructions, uh, did you notice as, they, as you read on, in the story, they, they, they stay afraid. Uh, verse 8, The women hurried away from the tomb. They're still afraid, and yet they're filled with joy. Uh, They're afraid, they're filled with joy, and then it happens. The guy that they had seen been put into this tomb, a lifeless corpse, all of a sudden, in verse 9, there he is standing in front of them, and he says, G'day. Or, you know, the, the equivalent. He says, Hi there. And everything changes in that one moment. Everything changes. They fall to their feet and they do what in the Bible can only be done to God. There's only one being who is worthy of worship and the women see who Jesus is and they fall to their feet and worship him. And Jesus knows that they need to be told a second time, do not be afraid. Because there's a whole lot of stuff going on here that would cause them to be afraid. Oh, look, there's, there's more in the story. We won't go into the, in more of the details. But the story continues. We're going to return next Sunday and look at the end of Matthew's account, Matthew's story about Jesus and how it continues. Uh, we're going to see next week how this incredible risen Jesus appears to his disciples and gives them and can give us a new and eternal purpose in this life. Um, uh, but w- w- what I want to do now is just end by reflecting on this uh, this meeting of Jesus and death and Jesus and the women. Uh, just reflect a little bit on it. Um, uh, and how it can sort of uh, hit home for us today. We saw on Friday the wonderful news that Jesus' death pays for sin, it pays for our brokenness. Jesus stands in our place under God's judgment uh, and in, in the place of his people to bring us for forgiveness and new life, which is nice in theory, isn't it? I mean, it's a nice idea. Good Friday, uh, kind of nice idea to have someone who would give their life for you so that you could be forgiven. But if Good Friday is all there is, if Good Friday is the end of the story, that's all it is. It's just a nice idea. It's just a nice theory. An inspiring act of self-sacrifice, perhaps. Something worth your time once a year to come and reflect on, uh, but without really any deep significance for your life. Certainly not something to get too worked up about, okay? If Good Friday is all there is. Perhaps, friends, for you, you might not say it like this, but for for some of us and for many people, I think, uh, in effect, we can view Jesus kind of like Joseph did and like the women did at first. Um, With respect, certainly. Uh, As a good teacher who had come to follow, uh, who uh, some people like to follow and get meaning from, yes. His death might have done something for you, but you're not really sure. Ultimately, in reality for you, Jesus is just a body. (laughs) He's he's a corpse. But friends, the historic reality of the resurrection of Jesus, it will not let us take that position. It shouts out that Jesus... uh, In Jesus, something has happened that is utterly unique. Something that is utterly new. It shouts out that what Jesus did on the cross is not just a nice idea or a theory, but that it is true. It is true that Jesus' death and resurrection is the central defining moment in all of human history. That he really did die for your sins. And he really is now alive and has a claim over all of reality and has a claim over your reality. He is God's risen king. And friends, when you get a sense of that, it explains the reaction of the chief priests and the teachers of the law, right, the Pharisees. It explains that they saw Jesus as a threat. They saw him as a threat because once we've ruled out that he's just a body, uh, once we've ruled that out, once we get a sense of how big this moment is, once we see how big Jesus is, there are only two options and one of them is to react and try and silence him. To see him as a threat. Uh, even to engage in deception to convince yourself of, of, of that, that he is not risen. But friends, there is another option. And I just want to commend it to you today. It's the option that these women uh, that these women took and that turned them from mourners to joyful worshipers. It is to recognize the reality ...of Jesus' resurrection. To be confronted by him. To have him stand in front of you and say, G'day. And to fall down in wonder and awe at his feet. To worship and praise him. To entrust your life to him. And to make him the the watershed of your life. The defining reality in your life. If you do that, if you have done that, God, by his grace, puts you into a new stream, right? The old stream that we're all familiar with, the one that we know, all know where it flows to, uh, that old stream, we all know where it goes. It is the stream in which death wins, ultimately, But this new stream that has been chiseled out in Jesus' death, that has begun with his own blood, this new stream, it goes in a mind-blowing, unthinkably wonderful, joy-giving, opposite direction. It is the stream that leads to a new world in which even death dies. Even death dies. Friends, maybe you're not yet convinced that Jesus did rise again. Um, I'd love to talk to you uh, if you'd like to uh, consider that more. Um, there may be people that you came with today that you could talk to that about that with. Uh, if you want to uh, explore that further with us as a church, there is uh, a, an opportunity to do that on the blue slip that you had. Uh, you can tick, I'm interested in finding out more about Jesus or something like that. We're going to uh, be... Uh, look, uh, having an opportunity later uh, this term in a few weeks to do that. Um, <clears throat> maybe you're not convinced that it's yet yet that it's true, but friends, all of us, I think, I think we do, and we should want it to be true. We should want. The world we all know, the world where death wins, is a world where everything will just fizzle out or burn up. But this world, this new world, this stream that Jesus has opened up in his resurrection, is the stream that will become a river that will lead to a new world of life and peace and eternal joy. The women were afraid and they were filled with joy at the same time. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, don't be afraid. And what is left for them? All that's left for them is joy. All that's left for them is joy. When you meet the risen Jesus and see him for who he is, when you trust your life to him, that is always what is left, joy. Friends, the wonderful news of Easter is that what we long for It really is true. Believing in Jesus, this isn't just some kind of wish fulfilment. It's not a mindless belief in something against the evidence, uh, simply because we want it to be true. But in the historic event of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, the, the great news of Easter, why we get so excited about it, is because what we long for turns out really to be true. What we all long for. Turns out to be true. It's not only true, but it's freely given to you. Freely given to all those who will put their trust in this one, be connected to him, join his stream. It will give you meaning and purpose and hope and joy. It will enable you to face your own death. Um, uh, a wonderful quote I'm uh, remembering that I, I sort of read this morning someone wrote, If this is true of you, Uh, I hope I get this right. (laughs) If this is true of you, it is more certain that you will rise from your grave than from your bed. If this is true of you. uh, Friends, I just want to leave you... um, For Not everyone, this isn't everyone's sort of... uh, It isn't everyone's bag, but I'm I'm going to leave you with a very touching, moving and famous poem written by an English poet called John Donne. That sums up a lot of this. This is what being in this stream can do for you, if you'll just receive it. If you'll see who Jesus is, and if you will entrust your life to Him, John Donne wrote this poem. It's a poem written to death. Okay, addressed to death. Donne says, "Death, be not proud." though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings and desperate men, and dost with poison, war and sickness dwell, and poppy or charms can make us sleep as well, and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then one short sleep past? We wake eternally and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Friends, can you imagine a world without death? That is the world that Jesus offers you. And I pray for us. Thank you, our gracious God and Heavenly Father, for sending Jesus into this world to die for our sins and to rise to new life. Thank you for the wonderful hope that gives us of a world where death itself dies. Father, for each of us, wherever we're at, uh, may we today be confronted with the reality of who Jesus is. And by your Spirit, please work in us to respond, to respond like the women did, to see him, to let go of our pride, to let go of uh, all that holds us back and to fall at his feet and worship him. Thank you for the wonderful world that that opens up. Uh, And we, we pray all of that through the blessed and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.